Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today, we're going to ride that French new wave with Francois Truffaut. You mean Francois Truffaut? <laughs> exactly. You know, the Important Cinema Club is kind of the Calle de Cinema of the new millennium. <laughs> yep. Uh, Justin here, a bit of a Truffaut type. Me, you know, a bit of a Godard. Uh, <laughs> That's you right. You know, like you and me, we go on long rambles around the streets of Paris after seeing <laughs> movies. Definitely. Was that the best Frank Tashlin film? I don't know, maybe. And and then in 20 years after I've been fully radicalized and you've, you know... Softened. Yeah, you've moved on to a life of bourgeois domesticity and Mm -hmm. you're making movies like Day for Night. We'll have our violent falling out. I can't wait for you to send the angry letter to me being like, Justin, this movie you made about making movies doesn't really represent our vision or to be about recording podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. And then you can say to me, you know, Truffaut did one of my favorite insults of all time to Godard, where he said, you should make a movie about your life called A Shit is a Shit. (laughs) (laughs) How long do you think he workshopped that one? Uh, So Truffaut, the normies like best. Mm -hmm, Uh, Yeah. You know, he's the one who won Oscars for best foreign film. Mm -hmm. Uh, His films were actually in the big Oscar categories a lot, while other filmmakers were becoming more radical Yes, or just going completely like off the reservation Mm. like Godard was at that time. Yeah. Essentially, he became what he dismissed early on in his career. Well, that's the received wisdom. Do Mm -hmm. you think that's totally fair? Because he made many movies that were sort of sentimental. But there's also another side to Truffaut, the more morbid side, the death-obsessed side. Well, Uh, let's talk about like what made him famous right from the Mm get-go. And that's in the first issue of Cade Cinema, the landmark French magazine about movies. He wrote uh, an article called Une certaine tendance du cinéma français. And what it was was a rambly, all-over-the-place attack on the screenwriters of French popular cinema. His hypothesis was that the prestigious, respectable cinema of France at this time, which was 1954, was uh, more of a writer's cinema or a producer's cinema rather than a director's cinema. Much more literary. And, you know, he attacked this cinema of quality, mm-hmm. quote unquote, that was into the idea of like adapting best-selling prestigious novels into film, but not so attuned to the actual cinematic qualities of the medium. And that tendency he put in opposition to a different kind of tendency, people like Jacques Tati, Jean Renoir, Robert Bresson, Abel Gass, Max O'Fools. These were the directors who, to him, were good. Essentially, Truffaut was attacking these screenwriters for creating Oscar bait. Stuff that didn't have any real emotional value beyond the manipulative final result that it would get. Mostly films about individuals who are taken down a peg by society so the people watching the films can go, ugh, isn't it bad that they live such a horrible life? And then they just go on into the world. And in this essay, he coined the phrase la politique des auteurs Mm -hmm. a policy of auteurs yes so not exactly a theory per se but yeah a policy that the true guiding vision of a film is the director now if Truffaut only ever wrote this essay he would have a place in film history yeah and if you read the essay it's probably not what you think it is it's actually filled with references to movies that we just don't talk about anymore yeah like very big popular french films that didn't have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. And Truffaut wrote this article because he wanted to make a name for himself. He was essentially the protege of André Bazin, 
the famed film theorist and critic who was editing Cage Cinema uh, with issue number one, and he wanted to create something that would cause a stir. And like, if you read Truffaut's letters around this time, he's very clear about like, listen, we will only publish stuff if it is like inflammatory or contrarian. In fact, I believe his nickname at the time was The Gravedigger <laughs> because of how harsh his reviews were. But... He loved American B cinema. Mm -hmm. And it was like the Politique des Auteurs and this article that he wrote, it was against this idea of people that are being anti-bourgeoisie while really just being bourgeoisie. Could you elaborate on this a little bit? So the idea of bourgeoisie is like the middle class, right? Uh -huh. Or the rich. And what Truffaut was saying is like, all this stuff that you guys are putting on screen, it's just cementing the status quo. It's not changing anything. And you're just dismissing all these other films. So you need to look at stuff that would be considered more conservative or more genre, like Johnny Guitar, and see the actual artistry in it. I think one of the things he was rebelling against was the idea that films should be judged on sort of the messages they were delivering, mm -hmm. uh, their socially redeeming, uh, so socially positive, socially yeah. conscious values, and, and more just to this almost like apolitical what, what's actually on the screen. And like, if you read that article, it actually comes off as a little bit like conservative in its views. Mm. Like the ideas that he's putting forth is like, stop trying to stuff this liberal propaganda <laughs> down our throat because we should look at like real stuff. And like his example of using Jean Renoir or Robert Bresson is really like, he still likes this kind of stuff when it feels authentic. Yeah. As opposed to this, like, manufactured kind of liberalism. Yeah, because Tati and Brisson are certainly political filmmakers in a in a broader sense. Mm -hmm. They're not didactic filmmakers, but... And this is also Truffaut going, like, I want to make an impact. I want people to notice me. And this led to making his first film, The 400 Blows, which he could only make by marrying a woman who had a rich father who funded his first film. Well, I want to get back to this idea that we alluded to before going on to mm -hmm. 400 Blows that he's somebody who sold out. Because, you know, Francois Truffaut, I don't have to tell you he's considered a great filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, he's still one of those guys who you associate with mid-century art house cinema. And yet, I think for guys like us, like, there's almost this received wisdom, this ingrained resentment towards him. Well, I like Francois Truffaut yeah. a lot, uh, specifically because he is the original director cinephile who mm -hmm. loves all movies mm -hmm. he wrote about movies he wrote books about mm -hmm. movies like i'm sure there's some before him but in popular culture he is like the big like go-to guy mm -hmm. but at the same time his films represent the films that he liked so if you watch them now especially mm -hmm. as he went on in his career they're representing like golden age hollywood which is this very manufactured and almost everything that like he kind of disliked about the movies that he threw under the fire is what he's recreating in his films well he and jean-luc godard who he will forever be compared to mm -hmm. both very opinionated guys who were big movie buffs Jean-Luc Godard eventually felt that, you know, he didn't want to conform to this bourgeois Hollywood idea of filmmaking. He wanted to almost recreate the medium from the ground up. Yeah, whereas, Truffaut just loves the bourgeoisie idea of filmmaking. He, like, he yeah. loves it. He loves, yeah, he loves genres. He loves working within yeah. genres. He doesn't want to subvert genres. When he makes a movie like Confidentially Yours, it's simply a good Hitchcockian-style thriller. Yeah. Whereas Jean-Luc Godard makes Breathless. At the same time, you could say that François Truffaut makes 
shoot the piano player, mm-hmm. which is his version of Breathless. Mm-hmm. His second film that Truffaut made was shot with like 16 millimeter cameras that were portable for the first time. He could go shoot out on the streets with minimal lighting, just make it up as he goes along. But the thing about Shoot the Piano Player is that it's within that trilogy of films that Truffaut made, 400 Blows, Shoot, and Jules and Jim, that are a Truffaut that never came back again. Yeah. That he essentially settled on something that he liked, and he just continued to go back to that model. Like, those three films have so much energy and, like, a young filmmaker, like, fighting against the constraints mm-hmm. of what is everyday cinema, and that just goes away. Basically, when he stopped shooting in CinemaScope, he just started to make, like, the same kind of movies. And that early Truffaut is my favorite Truffaut. Absolutely. And I mean, I have... Some big gaps in my Truffaut knowledge, Mm -hmm. I have to say, because, you know, moving on from there, he's made movies that I like, but he's not somebody who I love. I I mean, I feel like Truffaut was someone that was always passionate about movies. But when you look at the synopses of his films, you're like... Uh, the story of Adele H (laughs) or like uh, another film about adultery. You associate him with a certain kind of either Oscar-y sort Mm -hmm. of prestige cinema like The Last Metro, which is a very good movie. Yes. Uh, But that sort of Mm -hmm. Oscar sort of movie, best foreign film winning type film. Or you associate them with uh, stories of Antoine Duanel growing up and cheating on his wife and being a dick. Yes. (laughs) But let's start at the first Antoine Duanel film, The 400 Blows, because like that's the one that people will always remember Truffaut for that even he kind of chafed against it, kind of shocked at the like rapturous reaction that it got. Mm -hmm. But it's such a personal film and it's obviously a director making a first picture and that the fact that he can successfully pull off this story of a young boy going through life and make it feel so real, that's what people reacted to. Truffaut and Godard are often thought of kind of, you know, by by the lay cinephile as almost being like you know, very closely, like stylistically linked at this time. I was struck by how different stylistically the 400 Blows is from Breathless. Well, I think Shoot the Piano Player is closest yeah, to Breathless yeah. than like, the 400 Blows Like is. the 400 Blows, which is often credited as being the first proper French New Wave film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very handsome looking film, mm-hmm. you know, very professionally mounted in a way that Breathless isn't. And I was reading a Richard Brody article called Auteur Wars, and he pointed out that there's a Truffaut quote where he said, the new French cinema would be even more personal than a novel, as individual, as autobiographical, as a confession or an intimate journal. Whereas Breathless, the story, the skeleton of it is stock, and it's more his treatment of the story that's really idiosyncratic. So a lot of Truffaut's movies are, you know, in their stories, extremely personal and confessional, but not so much in their style, you know? Uh, yeah. Is that a fair assertion? Well, you know, what I associate with Truffaut is a particular sense of style. It's almost artificial in its construction. And I think I always go back to films like The Bride Wore Black, which is his Hitchcock homage. Mm -hmm. And it represents an idea of French filmmaking that is very, like, you know it when you see it. Like, the way the camera moves Mm -hmm. in a way that, like, you don't associate with modern filmmaking. Because it's so artificial and that's going back to the golden age of Hollywood that Truffaut likes so much mm-hmm. but the thing about like something like 400 Blows is that it feels real thanks to a performance of a young first time actor Jean-Pierre Liu and it's also helped by the fact that it's shot in the streets it's just shot like in life in a way that stage bound Hollywood and French cinema hadn't quite achieved yet relevant to the 400 Blows perhaps would be some details about Francois Truffaut's upbringing yes born in 1932 
in Paris. He grew up loving movies, which allowed him an escape from his unhappy home life. For his first eight or nine years, he lived with his grandmother because he was born out of wedlock, which was uh, a source of great shame for him and his family. Eventually, when his grandmother grew too old to care for him, he moved back in with his mother and his by then stepfather. His mother and stepfather had another child, but this child died very early on. And so they regarded Truffaut with resentment. And Truffaut brought all these experiences and put them in Mm. 400 blows. Like almost all the anecdotes in the film are based on his own life. And one of the things that was a great release for Truffaut in his early years was going to the movies. As a teenager, he became a regular at the famous Henri Langlois Cinémathèque, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, he saw, I think by his own count, 3,000 movies or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, b- made the acquaintance of Jean-Luc Godard. Claude Chabrol, Jacques Rivette. Mm-hmm. Um, All the boys. Eric Cramer. I love the 400 Blows. God, what is there even to say about it at this I point? I mean, like, it's been talked to death. And it's a movie that, like, you watch it and you understand why it was so popular. You know, I, what I love about it is how unsentimental it is. I mean, the kid is an asshole. He is an asshole, but yeah. it's, he's such a relatable asshole. We've all acted like this in some form as a child. The movie follows young Antoine Duanel as he kind of goes a little bit off the rails in his uh, adolescence. He, he and his friend resort to a lot of petty thievery just because they can do it. Yeah, just because they want to have fun yeah like you want to take characters aside and be like why would you do this and that's a conversation that my father had a lot with me as a child where he's like why didn't you do this or why did you do this and it's like because i didn't want to because i'm lazy and i wanted something fun right away why would a kid go steal a typewriter as he does in this movie it's because well he has no power yeah and he has this this terrible home life where he's unloved and so like the only power that he can exert is to go steal a typewriter and like the idea of like well what will be the consequences of this never cross his mind because like it's just what the next thing is that's what matters yeah and i think that like this realistic portrayal shot in this energetic way and stylistically it's pretty matter of fact like Mm. Truffaut's not trying to show off in a way that he did after we shoot the piano player. It's almost classically French with some more down-to-earth feel. It is very beautiful, though. It like is. widescreen, 35mm. Yeah. Uh, Truffaut would say he stopped using CinemaScope because he felt that he just used it because it looked cool. And that, like, once he realized that he didn't have to utilize this mm. stuff and that he felt it kind of felt like an aquarium, like mm. looking at a CinemaScope frame, that he went back to more, the more classical, mm. like more boxy mm. one in his previous mm. films. But maybe that's just because we're uh, around 30 years old and CinemaScope mm. is cool. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe once we're like older, we'll be like, ah, no, Truffaut's older, less challenging film well, are the ones I prefer. I think uh, 400 Blows is beautifully composed. Yes. Uh, you know, every shot. You, we, we see a lot of CinemaScope movies these days mm. that are not beautifully composed. They don't utilize the frame like Truffaut does. Yeah. And, you know, just any movie like this that shows, like, how tedious and frustrating childhood could be, because that's something people forget about childhood. Is that yeah, is that, yeah, is that it sucks, and you act like an asshole, and your parents are difficult. Like, the kid's mom doesn't want him, doesn't yeah. want him around, like, it's complicated, and, like, how that affects the kid mm-hmm. is not touched upon directly because the kid doesn't even quite know how it affects him no you know because it's something weird that he doesn't understand or how he should react to it and how this will change his life like in some of the early drafts Truffaut actually questioned the parentage of Antoine Duanel and he thought it was just too much in the movie and he actually pulled back on it Mm -hmm. 
And uh, there's another great scene in the movie when he's lying in bed and he has the blanket over his head and he's listening to his mother and stepfather having this argument where they're basically trashing the kid saying i don't want him here you know mm-hmm. he creates too much trouble he's too loud and you see jean-pierre leot's face and it's really not registering anything because it's like well you know this conversation probably happens every night and like what what can i do about it exactly. there's nothing i can do about it and however that you know frustration will manifest itself eventually in unexpected ways so chufo after the release of 400 blows and it just blew up everywhere like people called it a revolution in cinema we hadn't seen movies like this before and chufo was baffled he was like what he actually found that it was a little too french mm. so shoot the piano player was like him trying to be as american and as experimental as possible like i said before like shooting on the streets with no lights it feels cheap it, and like he was he's going for that like poverty row kind of feel really a breathless kind of feel exactly well because yeah breathless but had come out between truffaut having given the story to godard yeah <laughs> um the big difference between breathless and shoot the piano player is i feel shoot the piano player is more consciously fun and playful mm. than breathless is like the famous scene where a uh, guy goes if i'm lying may my mother be struck and dead and then it cuts to his mother dying and then it cuts back to him <laughs> just like a little family guy side aside i kind of mourn that we didn't get more of this from Truffaut. Uh, me too. But I mean, we have that, and his name is Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> yeah, but he's not fun. <laughs> yeah, he's not fun. Well, let's talk about Day for Night. Yes. Which we both watched for this podcast. One of Truffaut's most beloved movies. Also the site of his famous falling out with Godard. I mean, and we are skipping over Jules and Jim, but in that because that's the one that like people love. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great movie. Yeah. But like we talked about 400 Blow, struggle to talk about it. <laughs> Let's move on to Day for Night, which is again the film that is like normie bait because like it was nominated for Oscars. Did it, it win? won best foreign film. Yeah, there you go. It's so approachable as a foreign film. Like mm. it's not challenging in any way. When this movie came out and was such a success, uh Jean-Luc Godard wrote his former colleague Truffaut a letter where he said, People aren't calling you a liar, but I will call you a liar. How come everybody fucks in this movie except the director? Because Truffaut was famous for sleeping with any woman that came across his path. And apparently in and in fact uh, Godard said, you know, how come uh, that photo of you with Jacqueline Bissett that was in the newspaper the other day isn't in the movie? <laughs> Which is like such a dickish thing to say. Yeah, because Truffaut yeah. did sleep with the star of Day for Night. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's also like piercingly true. Yes. I'm I'm sorry, it is. And then, you know, Godard then becomes even more of a dick by saying, hey, if you want to redeem yourself, how about you give me some money and then I can make <laughs> a real movie. Wasn't Godard like advertising he was going to make a movie about a black Frenchman that was locked in a basement and Truffaut like responded with like, he's never going to make that movie. That's not the kind of movies he makes. Well, Truffaut wrote a famous long 20-page yeah. letter in response, which is very enjoyable. And we can't forget that the other thing that was between them is that Jean-Pierre Léo had started to work for Godard as well. Yeah. And Godard was kind of treating him not very well and as a weapon against Truffaut. It was kind of... Jean-Pierre Léo is like the son in a marriage yes. when they're breaking up. Yeah. And then I think eventually Léo went on Truffaut's side because mm-hmm. one of Truffaut's objections to Godard was that he he was going to try to pressure Léo for some money. Yeah, and, and he, he probably would have. Yeah, and he thought that was very unfair. So Godard, we all know, is an asshole and a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. But... Like, I think he's not wrong in his complaints about no. 
I think he's absolutely correct. Because part of what's motivating Godard, too, is probably like uh, jealousy at this time, because Godard is just coming out of his wilderness period. (laughs) And he's watching his old colleague, you know, getting best foreign film Oscars for kind of a light, fluffy movie. Yeah, and it's great. I I really like Day Mm. for Night. I think it's fun. I think that it really gets the idea of working on a film set. Like the fact that like Mm. people create relationships and then it just dissolves when the movie ends. Yeah. And the film tells you that in dialogue. (laughs) Like we have these relationships and they just dissolve at the end of it. Do you like it? Especially as a filmmaker? Yes, I do. I think that it does represent something true in that sense. The only thing that it doesn't get is that no one ever gets angry on set. So Mm. it's just very pleasant. Like bad stuff happens, but not bad in the sense that you feel any of the consequences of it. It is very pleasant. Actually, one of the bad things that happens is that like the leading man dies. But that's just random. And that's not related to anybody's actions. And it kind of gets brushed off. Yeah, Um, But it, it is charming that the movie like loves all the technical stuff about film. Mm-hmm. It loves seeing film loaded into the camera. It loves, you know, uh, the, the, the ticker effects. going off of yeah. like the film going through. It loves how stunts are done. Or the way that a director, his mm-hmm. job is essentially making decisions and going mm-hmm. like, yes, that gun. No, not that shirt. Can we paint that car a different color? Yeah. Or the way that the director has nightmares every night, which happens to anyone directing when they make a movie. In particular, one of his nightmares is, why don't you make political films? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he feels Godard already yelling at him. And I mean, you know, Godard... I don't believe Godard saw Day for Night. Uh, I don't think he would sit down and watch that movie. I actually think he might have just because, like, as a, as a hate watch. Haven't you, like, kind of hate red stuff <laughs> for people you hate? <laughs> Look who you're asking. This is why I'm the Jean-Luc Godard. You are 100% the Jean Luc Godard. <laughs> oh no, that makes me the Truffaut, which means that only success and uh, accolades are coming my way. I do like Day for Night. I think it's very charming. Mm-hmm. I liked it less than the first time I saw it this time. It felt very kind of light, and I felt less compelled by all the petty personal dramas. But it feels unfolding. French, and that's what people like about mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels different than like an American mm-hmm. picture would, and it is showing a side of an industry that hasn't really been documented in that kind of like like laissez-faire style before. Mm. You have films about Hollywood since Hollywood began, but this kind of interpersonal dynamics and these like big momentous things are happening that doesn't really matter. Like the leading lady sleeping with the leading man, even though she just got into marriage Mm -hmm. that has been shown that she's very much in love with. Mm -hmm. It's all these dynamics that are happening around it. And that's fun to watch. And meanwhile, Truffaut himself stars as the sexless director. (laughs) uh, Who's just a great guy. (laughs) I mean, like we're not going to get too much into Truffaut's personal life, but he was a poon hound. Like, sure. <laughs> he made a movie called The Man Who Loved Women that was just an auto critique of his own life, yeah. essentially. I find that strain of his movies, like in the Antoine Duanel series, mm-hmm. a, like less adorable. Really? Do you think it's too, like, um, it's, it's self-referential? I just find, uh, like, maybe self-justifying. Like, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Antoine Duanel is a, a, he's a jackass, though. Yeah, so it's he not is. like oh, look at him be a good guy. It's mostly documenting his life and essentially the mistakes that he makes. I think with each Antoine Ronel movie, I enjoyed spending time with him less. Mm, I like that the last one is essentially a clip show because Truffaut needed money. And he's like, I'm just going to shit this one out. And he said that he regretted it for the rest of his life. Trail of the Pink Panther. By the way, I think somebody should make a a new (laughs) Antoine Ronel movie with Jean-Pierre Léaud as an old man. I mean, like, Jean-Pierre Léaud still acting and they should, 100%. You know who would do something like that? Richard Linklater. Or Michael Winterbottom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's an experimental film. Oh, you know, 
what? Justin DeClue. Jean-Pierre, give me a call. Mm. We can uh, make it work together. Speaking of the fact that Truffaut did not have a combative relationship with the medium, like Godard did, mm. we both watched his final film, Confidentially Yours. Yes. And that one is like Truffaut trying to get back to his roots, but his roots not of Jules and Jim, Shoot the Piano Player, and 400 Blows, but the roots of like Alfred Hitchcock. Because we didn't even mention that uh, Truffaut, uh, along with uh, the Cage Cinema gang, like Claude Chabrol and Eric Romer, they were the ones who pioneered Hitchcock as an important cinematic figure. And not and not just an important cinematic figure, but like an important artist of yeah, any artist. medium. Like, put him up there with Beethoven, you know? Like, Hitchcock was popular at the time, but he wasn't considered, like, a creative mm. mastermind in the way that, you know, like you said, Beethoven. But thanks to the book Truffaut Hitchcock, that changed completely. And that book is as important as any of Truffaut's films. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. But so Confidentially Yours is him, like, really digging into this Hitchcock pastiche to the point that the film is even shot in black and white. Yeah, and it looks good. Like, it, it's shot in 1983, but it definitely looks like it could be, like, a 50s Hitchcock movie. And uh, he kind of shoots it in the same way. He gives it his kind of, like, French flair. But it's not trying to break the genre or deconstruct no, the genre. it's not revisionist in any way. It is a fan film. <laughs> 100%. And I think we both moderately enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it for what it was, which yeah. was, like, a Hitchcock pastiche. And I was watching it thinking, why would, at this point, he want to make this film Mm -hmm. and then i guess i thought well maybe it seemed fun (laughs) yeah i think that's probably what encouraged him as he was going along like the movie that he had made right before this was a film about adultery Mm. a topic that he dealt with a lot Mm. in his career maybe Mm. he just wanted to get away from it i mean you know speaking of films that actually do feel like vital and alive the soft skin which he made Mm. early in his career which is his first Mm. real hitchcock Mm. homage but about adultery Mm is like that kind of like revisionist kind of reestablishing um, the genre and what he loves around a new topic. Mm-hmm. But Confidentially Yours is just, again, the same thing. Just yeah. done his way. Well, it's a wrong man story with mm-hmm. uh, Jean-Louis Trantignant. I'll, I'll never learn how to pronounce it. <laughs> the guy from Amour. That's uh, right. You know, accused of a murder. and oh, He's such a jerk in this movie. He is such a jerk. And his secretary, played by Fanny Ardant, who suspects he may actually be true when he's saying that he's not guilty, uh, hiding him and trying to find out who the real killer is. You know, a lot of red herrings, a lot of twists and turns, and it all snaps together for an ending that doesn't quite snap together. No, I mean, some of the big problems with the film is that the uh, Jean-Louis is such a jerk in the movie, and mm. the film doesn't demonize him in any way. I thought it was going to demonize him until the end. And at the end, they just get to get, and you're like, what the heck? Yeah. Like, unless this is sly commentary, but I don't think it is. Essentially, every man in Truffaut's films are jerks. Yeah. Like, they're all assholes. I think I have trouble with that, to be Do honest. You? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, it's a problem in Confidentially Yours, or as it's known in France, Vive ma dimanche. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Sure. <laughs> um, is that, like... If you're not going to auto-critique this guy who treats the women like garbage and at the end, like, forcefully kisses her yeah. and then she suddenly comes on her side, that's a big problem. Mm. I do love Fanny Ardant in this movie. Oh, she's so charming. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed this movie as it was going along because yeah. it's very well made. Like, the visual style is very clean and nice looking. But I think uh, the problem is you're like, this is François Truffaut. Like, what else is yeah. there there? And then the last 10 minutes are not as satisfying as they no. should be. Like, there's that moment when the whole mystery comes together and it should be like 
Yes. Yes. You know, here are the puzzle pieces. Instead, it's like, okay. Yeah. But again, it's about a man who's like, I love women so much. I had to kill for them. Like, it's the same themes that he would revisit over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like, if people like that kind of stuff, I'd recommend it. But it's not like a hard, like, you got to see this. I would also think, like, it's a pleasant Sunday afternoon viewing. Mm -hmm. But also, you could watch a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, you could. (laughs) And Truffaut, unfortunately, he was like one of the first French New Wave guys to pass away mm-hmm. he had a brain tumor and he died in his early 50s having never reconciled with Jean-Luc Godard nope and Jean-Luc Godard just you know pissed kept, on his grave <laughs> yes soldiering on outliving everyone yeah. out of pure spite so uh, Francois Truffaut if you're listening in the great beyond sorry to view you so much through the prism of Godard I know you wouldn't <laughs> want that but I can't help it <laughs> I mean I like Francois Truffaut films but again like it's difficult his later period films for me to go, I should watch these because I know what they're going to be. I know that some critics have made a case for his darker side, they, like his preoccupation with death. I watched The Green Chamber for this podcast and I really liked okay, it. Okay, that's one that I wanted to, but I couldn't get to it. So I will put that on my list as something to watch. And for people that don't know, it's a film that Truffaut made because at the time uh, people close to him had passed away and he was dealing with how do you move forward when people are dying. So the film was about him, whose uh, wife had passed away, and his inability to move on, mm. and the kind of systems that he creates to be able to remember her and to have her essentially dominate his life and everybody that's passed away. Mm. It's a fascinating film, and it's actually a picture that tanked at the box office, which resulted in Truffaut going, I need to make more commercial stuff. You want to see Mississippi Mermaid? Here you got it. <laughs> I mean, that came out before that. Okay, but whatever. instead he was like, I'm going to give you something that's going to earn Oscars, like uh, Le Dernier Metro, which mm. is about another creative group of people that are working through, this time there's drama, the Nazi occupation of France. Mm-hmm. You know, good movie. Good movie. But it is what it is. Yes. Like, it's not going to light your hair on fire or anything <laughs> like that. Maybe we're too young. We're looking for those thrills that, like, once we're older, Truffaut will be able to deliver it all yeah. to us. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, our first letter is from Charles Brooks, and he goes, Dear Justin and Will, The recent Kiristami episode came at the perfect time for me, as I've only just begun to explore Iranian cinema. Close-up in particular has been an absolute revelation, one of the most remarkable examples of meta-cinema I've ever come across. Personally, I rank it right up there amongst the great movies about movies alongside Sherlock Jr., Sunset Boulevard, Singing in the Rain, Eight and a Half, Mulholland Drive, etc. Etc. Though it might uh, be a little silly to lump such diverse films together, I wonder, are there any lesser-known meta-movies that you guys feel deserve more attention? Many thanks in advance, Charlie. Good news. We did a whole Patreon episode about it. Okay, but listen, let's give him a little something. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, what are ones that we didn't mention on the Patreon episode? Uh, well, movies about movies, you know, I'm very excited for The Other Side of the Wind, I have to say. Oh, I'm so oh, excited oh, about it. Have, you saw the trailer, I right? saw it, yeah. You sent it to me right when of it was course, released. Of course, <laughs> And the fact so that people good. are had the reaction that you would want, where people are like, I don't know if it's for me, but they're still saying, like, it's good, and the people who love it, like, love it. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so great. Uh, maybe... Let, Let's uh, say something that I think I maybe didn't mention on that Patreon episode uh, that I really like is Abel Ferrara's Dangerous Game. Yes, uh, so, the Harvey Keitel one. Yeah, star- starring Madonna and Harvey Keitel. And uh, just a great movie about like 
you know, the, the messiness of the creative process. Did we mention the one that Bella Lugosi stars in with the cast of Dracula and it's a murder mystery on Poverty Row? I think we did mention that very briefly. Yeah. The Death Kiss, it's called. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I would highly recommend it. And it got like a crazy Blu-ray release recently. Mm-hmm. But as far as other movies about movies or specifically like making movies, what we talked about, the, our, the Patreon episode covers all of it. And I just don't remember everything that we mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> so our next letter is from Felix uh, Dembinski, and the subject line is Matt Farley Ozu Concerns About Narrative. <laughs> Hi, Important Cinema Club. Let me add to the growing number of emails thanking you for introducing Matt Farley's films to listeners. I never heard of him before and have since seen Slingshot Cops, Don't Let the Rubies Get You, Freaky Farley, and Local Legends. Excellent. Any more episodes on similar current filmmakers making independent movies with seemingly no interest in working their way into the studio system would be greatly appreciated. I felt while watching these goofy horror films, the level of humanism entirely absent for most contemporary films. I don't want to appear hyperbolic or like the letterbox reviewers wanting to be Godard mentioned in a recent episode, but I was reminded of Ozu's films with a lot of time spent on characters and scenes that add little or nothing to the plot. You know, I think that's not so far off the mark. I don't think that's far off the mark either. Don't you think? Like like Ozu, I think Matt Farley creates his own kind of cinematic grammar. It's a very like like low-key... Like he likes just objects Mm -hmm. and ordinary people. Uh, I finally have the title for my Matt Farley book, Mm -hmm. Manchester's Ozu. Yeah. Uh, the letter continues. So much of modern cinema seems to be focused more and more narrowly on hitting the beats in a simple narrative, and any deviation away from this from large ones like Twin Peaks of Return or small ones like Star Wars 8 get bashed by audiences and critics. On your episode about story within film, you didn't discuss whether or not the heavy focus on story is actually good for audiences. Simple narratives certainly stay with and affect people, but as events and politics have shown, the effect a heavy emphasis on them can have can be a very bad one. This is in a political rant, however, it does move back to film. Have either of you seen any film from Peter Watkins or Raoul Ruiz? Their ideas on the monoform and central conflict theory have made me realize how limiting the current conventions of narrative cinema are and how they can impact negatively our audiences. Are there any trends in modern cinema that either of you find concerning? It's a heavy topic to spring from Matt Farley. Again, I would like to hear about similar filmmakers. I love to see new fun films that don't fit the standard Hollywood structure. Kind regards, Felix. Well, I think most movies, you know, in the studio system are very, uh, you know, formulaic. Yeah, assembly line based. But, but, but it's because, you know, they have to sell all over the world and they're, you know, so expensive that there's not a lot of motivation to do a lot of risks. You know, all the familiar reasons. Let me get my copy of Joseph Campbell's The Man with a Thousand Faces and explain <laughs> the monomyth. Uh, no, well, and with Star Wars The Last Jedi, by the way, like, that's a very particular case as well because, like, there are just that particular story so many people are invested in. That's right, like, yeah. It's so breaking conventions. Yeah. People expect it already that, like, it's shocking and they don't like it. Yeah. I mean, if a movie had done that without, like, the Star Wars characters, number one, that would make no sense. Mm. <laughs> and number Number two, I don't think it would have been as popular as it was because it was a Star Wars picture. Like, I think increasingly the Star Wars movies are like having a problem that like there's no satisfying people. Like people care about this series so much and they bring their own personal baggage to it so much that it's like nothing can live up to the memory of what they loved when they were eight. And as far as how important story is to the enjoyment of a film, like I don't know if we talked about this, but it depends on what kind of movie that you're getting right like if you're getting a genre film like a slasher film or an action film a level of satisfaction like a base human desire comes from the tropes that i expect from that like if i watch an action movie and 
it doesn't have like multiple action scenes, I will be disappointed because that's what I came and expected. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly like the way that the story would be told, like these beats that it has to hit. Like I got to say like Donnie Yen now, he has hit on a formula where its films have three action scenes per movie. It's not enough. Yeah. (laughs) So like, but that's just how the way that like storytelling evolves. Like maybe people that'll be good enough for them. And like, they don't want too many set pieces because they find it overwhelming. But are there trends that we find disconcerting in modern cinema? I mean, like other than the obvious ones, like uh, making film uh, for the global marketplace. So it has no personality. Uh, I am not generally encouraged by a lot of modern cinema. Yeah, but like modern cinema has always been bad, but it's just specifically bad now in a different way because it is global. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of like, oh, uh, the Rock's new movie has to appeal mostly to China because that's where most of the money will make does give it like a very mushy feel because guess what, people? China has certain restrictions (laughs) that don't allow, you know, films to take chances. I also kind of wish that the Hollywood studio system still existed. Mm, you like, mean like the factory line Yeah, system? you know, there was just the, the level of like technical competence was much higher back then, you know? Like there's no longer that kind of baseline competence anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean like what the problem is, and we've gone to this topic over and over again, is the idea of like every film needs to make a billion dollars. Yeah. And like people are not learning the lessons of movies like Crazy Rich Asians or Get Out or any of those small films that make a sizable amount of money compared to its budget. Instead, they want like the big billion dollar thing. And the reason for that is that Hollywood is controlled by like a handful of companies. So money doesn't even really mean that much in the long run for them. Mm -hmm. Only prestige does and breaking records. I think money means something to them. It does. But (laughs) I mean, like, what's the difference between a billion and a billion and a half to like Disney? It doesn't mean that much. I mean, it means a lot if you spent $900 million. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But you know, most people, like the organizations will always bounce back. The individuals will get golden parachutes and move on to something else. And as far as like indie filmmakers who are passionate and different i would wish peter kapowski would be here because he could give you probably a dozen people well i uh, i like this fresh-faced young filmmaker who just made a movie called first reformed i think his <laughs> name is paul schrader yeah he's very interesting uh that is definitely his last film so i don't think <laughs> yeah. he'll be making any film after that he said no, everything I, he has to say i mean i think the uh, democratization of cinema uh, has brought lots of great interesting mm. filmmakers and also uh endless bad movies and the thing about anybody can you know make a movie with a lot of effort is that you don't hear about them yeah because there's a million movies out there if they can't sell you're not gonna know what they are they're out there but we're not just not talking about them. And you know what else i don't like how expensive movie tickets are <laughs> and i don't like how expensive popcorn is i think this was a good first episode of the important cinema club we hit those opening beats <laughs> and people are texting at the cinemas mm-hmm. and uh, i just want to stay home and watch my william bodine movies uh, next week, we're actually going to be talking about really independent filmmakers because mm-hmm. we're going to be doing an episode on zero budget action directors. I may find a better term for them uh, by the time we do that episode, but essentially, I love action movies. Will loves action movies. And 
The idea of like people independently making action movies, that's the first thing that you do when you're a kid. You like mm-hmm. pick up a gun, you pretend to fight and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to do it well is so hard and so unrewarding <laughs> because people don't appreciate it. They just don't. We're going to be focusing mainly on Eric Jacobus and his film Contour and the other films that he made around the kind of stunt people banner. This is a guy that in the early 2000s just started making fight movies with his friends and took them to a level that were so polished and professional in their fighting and action that like it just blows my mind that he didn't go on to like bigger and better things he did and we'll talk about that um, during the episode but it took a long time and a film like Contour which is shot on mini DV with his friends for no money in locations that he has it kind of like boggles my mind that it hasn't blown up more and I'm just interested in like looking at these films and we're going to be talking about other filmmakers as well and like what motivates them why do they make these kind of pictures and like what do they get out of it and we're gonna be talking about someone even further in the past i'm bringing a film to the discussion that i've always wanted to see but never had called the deadly art of survival from 1979 a low-budget do-it-yourself kung fu movie that emerged from new york's no wave art scene (laughs) directed by a guy named charlie ahern always been curious about it so we're gonna check it out been a while since we've done an episode about action movies so i'm excited mm. and until then uh to whet your appetite hope you're a patreon subscriber because we did a very special episode this week which is me and will each of us watched a classic film that we've never seen I'm not going to tell you what it is you're probably going to listen to it and go what the how had they never seen these movies you have to be a patreon subscriber to find out it's five dollars a month you get four exclusive episodes every month and if you're a patreon subscriber this week you get a fresh new ear loving commentary ear, track. Ear, you know, ear fucking. <laughs> yeah, commentary just track. Just a big dick in your ear. <laughs> which is, we can finally reveal what movie we did, which was Fantasy Mission Force. If you're like, wait, what's Fantasy Mission Force? I've never heard about this. Probably the most infamous Jackie Chan film of all time. Mm-hmm. So this film has been on the gray market for decades Mm -hmm. you could always pick it up at walmart and because of that loyal patreon subscribers for a limited time there'll be a link in the post where you can actually watch the film synced up with the commentary track that we just recorded Mm -hmm. so much stuff in it you know discover more of me and will just 90 pure uncut minutes with us (laughs) uh it's kind of scary stuff but i hope you enjoy it so until next week my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening Justin and I sometimes go to the movies together, mm-hmm. or sometimes we find ourselves at the same movie and, and we try to avoid <laughs> not having contact. planned. Yeah, and you I'm know. like, hey, Will, you're like, oh, hey, hey, sorry, this seat's taken. It's like we, we want to save it all for the podcast, <laughs> yeah, you right. know. But this week on Friday, we went to see a movie at the Tiff Bell Lightbox called Wild Side, directed by Douglas Camel, mm-hmm. uh, who co directed Performance. Yep, and he also made Demon Seed mm-hmm. and White of the Eye. Wild Side was his last picture, and it's mostly famous for being the film that people said caused him to commit suicide uh, in some versions while editing the films in other versions because he was so angry that the film was taken away out of his hands. It's an erotic thriller I guess. Um, 
what erotic company, is a strong word what company did he make it for new image who are most yes. famous for releasing a bunch of gary daniels action pictures if you saw a movie on the shelves that was like a generic action cover and had a title like u.s seals 2 it was probably new image that and i released think it. new image became millennium films they did yeah and doing some stuff like the expendable films and, and bad lieutenant port of call new orleans <laughs> yes that's right as well um and we watched the director's cut of wild Side. now this was momentous because while the film was re-edited and rescored after Donald Camel had passed away, it had only been released on DVD by a company called Tartan that had long ago gone out of business mm-hmm. and that it never was released on Blu-ray. There's no high-def version of the director's cut. And Peter Kaplowski was able to find, after months of searching, they actually had to contact a bunch of archives and the director's uh, brother sent a letter to the archives where the print was to give them permission to send it to TIFF and we got to watch it on 35mm which is hilarious because it's just a skeezy erotic thriller that has the most insane Christopher Walken performance that you have ever seen. Like, I was going to say that it's like a full Nicolas Cage performance. It's beyond that. Nicolas Cage has never gone this far. This is the film that Tommy Wiseau saw and said, I want to do that. Every level. And mostly Watkins' performance. But even the sets have, like, the cheap, like, built-on-a-studio feel. Watkins' hair looks like Tommy Wiseau. It's like, I don't know what it is. The the centerpiece scene of this movie. You know the one I'm talking about. Where... Should I describe what happens well, in this scene? Let's just talk about what's Watkins' performance in the film, yeah. which is he's coked up, he doesn't know where he is, and he's just improvising as he goes along. All of the like Watkinisms are just dialed up to eleven here, and <laughs> and let run wild, and like you can tell that he's improvising the scene. everything. Yeah, yeah. So like the people around him are sometimes confused about what's happening. There's a scene where okay, trigger warning, folks, because uh, we're gonna be talking about rape a little bit here. Mm-hmm. But when he finds out that his like henchman has raped the Anne Hesh character he then insists on raping the henchman yes now he doesn't actually uh, go all the way sorry the build up to it it's like it's like the hard boiled of like like build ups where you're like oh my god here it comes and Walker just keeps seemingly like going off script He's coming back doing so much stick like making this guy bend over yeah and, and like his character he can be angry at one point scared the other sometimes it's in the same line it's awe inspiring and you know I don't think this movie worked or anything, no. but but God, I mean... <laughs> like, as a train wreck, like, just yeah. watching it. And it's, like, energetic. It has a really good score on the director's cut version mm-hmm. done by Ryuchu Sakamoto that has that, like, Merry Christmas, uh, Mr. Lawrence feel yes. to it. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely, like, if it interests you to watch it, but, like, don't expect it to be, like, an undiscovered masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. It's a neo-noir which New Image made a lot of, mm. some of them starring Casper Van Dien, that has all the hallmarks of their regular like output, but with this insane performance at its center. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say anything bad about the director, but I can understand being the producers and seeing this and being like, what is this? Yeah. Like, this is crazy. Do you realize the kind of movies we make? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 